You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kibalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. And what the issue is in advance, and then hopefully um, talk about them in more serious depth. So I'll start with Becky. Um, I think four years ago, I organized in, um, one of the CMTL's annual conferences for rabbis and educators, and I wanted to run one session on the problem of charisma. And I couldn't get anyone to participate, because no one understood what the problem was. Charisma is a good thing in education. Uh, now, since then, um, unfortunately, owing to a series of scandals, and then um, a very interesting post by Paul Shaviv, who had been principal of Ch- Chat in Toronto, and also of Ramaz, so... People began to understand what the issue of charisma is, and then recently a post by Shana Goldberg um, in the aftermath of the Mayor Pagro scandal sort of formalized it somewhat, and then Ellie Fisher, at somewhat at my prodding, dug out an article I had written four years earlier and rewrote it. So that in education, people are beginning to understand sort of what the issue is, but what there isn't, I think, what there hasn't been, is a philosophic context. Um, and we tend to define, we, we run into the problem where charisma, um, like there's, there's what in policy is what's called the if by whiskey speech. Are you opposed to whiskey? Well, you know, if by whiskey you mean the, the nectar of the gods that brings common people. No, of course not. But if by whiskey you mean the, you know, you mean the drink of the devil that causes people to. So we've been a problem defining what this, what charisma is. And it doesn't work if you say charisma is the thing that charisma, if good charisma is the stuff we like and bad charisma is the stuff we don't like. And in general, I tend to um, tend to adopt what I think is a deeply rabbinic approach, which is that most characteristics are both good and bad. And the job is not to distinguish between what the, right, the good kind and the bad kind, but the job is to establish a system in which the good uses emerge and the bad uses are controlled. In the same way, in the same way that Chazal talk about the Yitzhara for the Yitzhara for Arayos or the Yitzhara for Avodazara, right? Those are things. The Yitzhara for Avodazara is the same as the Yitzhara for for positive religion. The Yitzhara for Arayos is the same as the as the Yitzhara for Puravu. So I want to argue that charisma is not something to which you can establish a valuative characteristic. Charisma is something that exists, and that without it, the world of education would be impoverished and nonetheless is very dangerous. So I want to set that out as a framework for what sort of, what, what, what sort of thing, um, framework I'm working with in the context of education. Um, but then I want to make um, two other claims, which probably are more unusual. Um, one is uh, a claim, one is that I, I want to have the same conversation, and this is really where my interest preceded it in, um, in education. I want to talk about the role of charisma in politics. Um, I do not wish to talk about this in the context of specific politicians necessarily right now. You can all draw, draw the lessons for yourself. Uh, I don't want to endanger the Shul's um, text, uh, text position and or, and or my own, uh, do I think it would cheapen Torah. Um, and this, was, this is a piece that's written long before the current presidential election and actually I hope will be part of, part of a book very, um, very soon and I hope that you'll help me work it out. Um, so I want to suggest that the role of charisma in politics is a serious philosophic question, one with a long pedigree, and one which, uh, which Judaism has something to say about. And then I'm going to move to the outset and claim that maybe these are not disconnected conversations, but that education and politics are related fields, such as the treatment of charisma in one of them is, is highly relevant to the other. Okay, that's a lot and probably too ambitious for, it would have been too ambitious for an hour and a half, and I'll blame it that the missing 25 minutes is uh, why I can't make the argument with completely, if you're not convinced, that's why. Uh, but, but it's possible that it, was, uh, that it was excessively ambitious to begin with. So let's start with what charisma is. Um, so happily now we live in a world where there are many dictionaries, and one can cherry-pick the dictionary that gives the definition you want. So the definition, the dictionary that gives the definition I want uh, was dictionary.com. Uh, whose primary definition of charisma is in the field of theology. Right, that charisma is a divinely conferred gift or power. 
Uh, second is the, is the definition that I think is more common in the educational debate, which is uh, a spiritual power or personal quality that gives an individual influence or authority over large numbers of people. The third definition doesn't matter so much for our purposes right now, but it will uh, It will as we go on. Third, right, third is charisma that comes not from a personal quality, but comes from a position um, that you occupy that then transfers to the person. So there is an assertion here. Right, we talk it right we, when we talk about charisma education, we tend to mean right just the second definition. Right, just right, just the, you know, it's some kind of power or personal quality, and then they add in this interesting word, a spiritual power. So why is charisma a spiritual power? So etymologically, it's because charisma is a divinely conferred gift or power. But the question is, is the, is the etymological point really powerful experientially as well? Is that kind of power that we talk about, uh, we talk about charisma, is that um, conceivable as somehow that the person is acting, um, is, is re- we relate to them as having access to some kind of supernatural power. A Kohen has charisma and a rabbi has uh, not. Yeah, well, we'll talk about rabbis in for essays to start with. So I want to put this in the context of um, Plato and Socrates. Uh, now, I, you know, to do the topic seriously, we'd have to do lots of things in Plato and Socrates. But I want to put it in the... Um, and I confess that, you know, I'm, obviously I'm an amateur in the field, and I'm also influenced by specific people, um, particularly Alan Bloom. So you can take that or, right, take, take that or not take that. You know, there's the Straussian influence in my, in my readings of Socrates and Plato. Um, but one of the ways in which I understand conversation in Plato, which particularly in the Ion, but also throughout the Republic, is that there is a clash between the philosophers and the charismatics. Right, and the fundamental political di- political dynamic in the right in, dynamic in the polis is the right is the battle for power and influence between the philosophers and the charismatics. And the charismatics in Plato are the artists, right, represent, uh, represented both by those who write the artworks and particularly by those who perform the artworks, who are there by right, thereby have a certain kind of power. So I gave you. Um, I gave you one particular um, element of the Republic where, um, so a large part of the Republic in this game is an attempt to uh, ensure that the charismatics have no influence except as directed by the philosophers. Um, and the challenge is how do you control the artists in the city which is supposed to be ruled by philosopher kings? And the answer is censorship. Right, that you make sure that the artists only say those things which the philosophers allow, which the philosophers allow them to say. And so the section I gave you, right, is where Socrates has a dialogue with Adimantus. See, those of you who don't realize this, when Socrates is talking to somebody else, the shortest, the easiest way to shorten the dialogue is just to cut out the other person. Because they, all they say is, yes, good, very good, right? <laughs> I agree entirely, <laughs> completely, right? That's pretty much the other person. Uh, much of the dialogue doesn't have so much of a role. Ultimately, uh, who they are matters a great deal, but their words, don't, their words don't matter so much. So he says is, let us pass a leisure hour in storytelling, and our story shall be the education of our heroes. Um, so first of all, and, and again, I don't doubt for the translation, but obviously there's a certain amount of irony. Um, in right, we're telling a story about we're telling we're telling a story about story, a story about storytelling, and so Plato right, so Socrates is undermining himself as um, as he goes. Um, he says, "Shall we just carelessly allow children to hear any casual tales, which may be devised by casual persons, and to receive into their minds ideas for the most part the very opposite of those which we should wish them to have when they are grown up?" Well, obviously not. No. So the first thing we have to do right, is to establish a censorship of the writers of fiction. And let the censors receive any tale of fiction which is good and reject the bad. I will desire mothers and nurses to tell their children the politically correct stories only, right, which means that most of what is now in use, um, namely Homer, has to go. Um, right? So what, what tell is speaking? Homer and Hesiod and the, and the rest of the poets who have ever been the greatest storytellers of mankind. And what, why do you find fault with them? Because they lie. And where do they lie? They lie about the gods. And how do they lie about the gods? 
They lie about the gods because they present the gods as being the authors of evil and not only of good. And the children who will grow up to be rulers have to have the belief that um, God is only responsible for the good. Right, that's his final. Right, that's the final line of this section. For our purposes, right, is that right? So, if God is truly good, and the good cannot be the cause of all things, but of the good only, then God, if He be good, is not the author of all things, as the many assert, but He is the cause of few of, of, of a few things only, and not of most things that occur to man. So, this is a very strong. Uh, this is a very strong claim. Right? Obviously, this is not so compatible with um, with Jewish theology of God as the author, the author of everything. He doesn't allow theodicy, but. The, 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 I want to um, talk about two things. First of all, obviously Plato make, right, makes the claim, right, recognizes that fundamentally education is a political issue. Right, the way in which you educate children will have a dramatic impact on the way in which a society is constructed. He makes the claim that in order to develop the ideal society which he sees as a society ruled by philosophers, you have to make sure essentially that their philosophy is not infected by poetry. So all the poetry will be constrained by philosophy. And the key issue is that the poetry will never, poetry should never be allowed to present the good as the author of evil. Now, on a theological level, that leads to all sorts of problems, but we should point out there's another thing that poetry will never be allowed to do, because God is the author of the good, and so are the rulers. So in the Republic, the artists will never be allowed to present the rulers as the author of uh, right, as the authors of anything bad, and ultimately, right, ultimately you have comp- you have, but the the job of the censorship of the poets is to make sure that the, that poetry charisma does not provide an independent standpoint by which people can evaluate the positions and actions of the leaders, and that's because in Plato, you basically you have right, you have philosophy which. Obtains truth through reason, and charisma, which he goes out of his way over and over to tell you, charisma is not accountable to reason. Charisma is a claim of direct divine inspiration. So Plato says that in the in the city ruled by the in the city ruled by the philosopher kings, um, poets will be censored, and charisma will not be allowed to have an independent standpoint. The only purpose of charisma is to enable people to love the philosophers and philosophy more. Now, if you turn the page, so I want to contrast this with, um, um, with a number, of, with a number of, of scenes. The first three I haven't translated, but you'll recognize the stories outside, and the language itself doesn't matter very specifically. The first is the moment where, when Natan Hanavi, right, Nathan the prophet, shows up, in, uh, shows up in front of King David after David uh, sleeps with Bathsheba. And he tells him a story. Right? There were two people in a city. One of them was rich. One of them was poor. The poor person only had one sheep. The rich person had a guest. The, get, um, the rich person didn't want to kill one of his own sheep for the guest, so he took the poor man's sheep, even though the poor man loved the sheep, and it gets kind of dramatic. You know, he slept with the sheep in his bed, but you know, he took care of it. And after telling this whole story, he turns to David and says, what should be done to this man? And David is all psyched up and says he should die. And that, right, and Nathanavi says, he read, um, "This is one that King James does well. Thou art the man." Right, uh, right. King James actually is really good in that one. Uh, okay, so what happens? So what is Nathanavi? Nathanavi is a teller of fiction, um, and he uses, right, and he uses fiction. It's a story which is not true. And I'm, I'm not getting into the. Um, I don't want to get into genres right now. And I gave you other. I gave you the. the I gave you the um, the parable of Ishaya, right? The song of his, the song of his vineyard. And then particularly, I gave you one position, which at least which exists in the Talmud. In the Talmud, it's not clear how popular it is, but Maimonides adopts it, which is that the entire book of Eov is a metaphor, right? Eov is a mashal. Eov never existed, he was never created. El Mashalhaya, he was just a metaphor. Now the book of Eov is, right, is, according to this, a fiction, and the fiction has exactly the purpose that Plato argues has to be kept out of the, out of the Republic. It argues that God is the author of all things. And that, right, and that the presence of, right, that 
there is no right that you have to simply accept that God the good is the author is the author of everything including evil. So I would suggest that um, fundamentally in the city of the philosopher king there is no space for prophecy because prophecy is a claim to authority on the basis of charisma. Which is exactly what Plato thinks, right, the king should suppress. Yeah. It's a divine gift, right? I mean, that's, I mean, don't we hope that ultimately the Nabi is, has God has a great... Right, which is exactly what the Greeks thought about Homer. Right? Exactly right. They thought that he wrote the Ruach HaKodesh and that performed, right? It's exactly right. We can say that we're right and they're wrong. That's fine. But, right, but it's not a fun, it's not a qualitatively different claim. It's a claim that you have, right, that you enter some kind of state in which you have access to, right, to the divine that other people don't. So that is a question, right? Or maybe they would argue that, right, that what we call charisma is really just a sort of secularized prophecy. Right? Ultimately, what charisma is is in some way a claim to authority, not because of who you are, but because you stand for something more than yourself. And people are affected by that not because they are con- not because they are rationally convinced, but because you appeal to their imagination or their emotions. So, right, so, yes, so I want to argue, right, that's right, is that prophecy is not a rational argument. Sure. So you're making the argument which the poets made. Yeah, right? the, the argument that the Roman makes right, is that philosophy makes uh, prophecy possible. Yeah, so the Ramam doesn't the Ramam doesn't have this distinction, really, right? The Ramam thinks right, that the philosophers it's in the background what we talked about. He, I mean he overrules it by saying that it leads to a perfection which itself brings about prophecy. Yeah, so the Ram ultimately thinks that philosophers become prophets. Right, and non and non philosophic charismatics are fakes. Right, that's right. That, that right. The Rama claims that right that all right that their true prophets are really philosophers. There's no possibility of contradiction between right between poetry and between true poetry and philosophy. Yeah, everyone else is Muhammad. Yeah, right. Because 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 poetry that contradicts philosophy is false. Um, but I don't. Right, that, that's a very strong claim. It's not Plato. Does it? Socrates doesn't make the claim that strongly. Socrates seems, at least in lots of places, to grant the, the genuineness of the experience, but despite granting the genuineness of the experience, he thinks that it's a bad basis for power. Right? Now, some people might say that he's just going lishitatam, right? You guys believe in, in poetry, so I have to pretend I believe in it also and nonetheless argue that. But this, the Pashib shot, I think, is that he accepts the... Right, is that he accepts it, what he tries to, you know, what he tries to argue is that... Um, is that while while charismatics are inspired, they aren't really them, they aren't saying anything immediately relevant to the situation, and once and once they come out of their trance, the fact that they are capable of prophecy is irrelevant, because the because the pro- prophecy is just a deranged state where God possesses you, so you have no right, you have no authority at all. Yeah. 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 
you know, I don't think most people in every day think about that. Like, like someone's charismatic is having any spirituality. It could, be, it could be used by somebody pretending to be, you know, somebody that's spiritual. So, good. But so, what I want. The definition is really somebody has a, a magnetic personality. What does magnetic mean? It's, it's sort of an intangible, right? They've got some sort of, um, you know, um, all right, so if you're, so I want to argue if you're a Platonist, there are only two things. There's reason, and there's everything else. And if you want to call it magnetism or spirituality, right, um, who cares? In each case, you're claiming authority on the, right, you're claiming authority on some basis, which is not rationally valuable. And they function the same way in society. It doesn't matter whether you're an evangelical preacher, right, or you're a populist politician. Yes, so I still am. Well, with with back to our tradition, right, where I I I would presume, you know, there are plenty of prophets that were, you know, that were that charismatic, right? Who says? Oh, well, lots of charismatics aren't effective. Lots of charismatics. I'm not meaning a prophet that wasn't that effective, right? Right. Lots of charismatics. Maybe he was lacking personal. Maybe, or maybe he was like maybe charismatics also need political judgment because often they arouse strong opposition. Right, they're met by other charismatics, and the two forces meet. But because you're a charismatic, doesn't mean you'll succeed. So William I'm Jennings Bryan is the most I'm charismatic politician in American history. So, so you're saying, seriously, from Plato's or Socrates' perspective, was that whether it's a charismatic with, with with some sort of actual divine enlightenment, right, or purely a charlatan with charismatic sort of personality traits, because it didn't matter. It didn't matter to Socrates. It's the same issue. Yes, and what I want to argue is, what I want to ask you is, is suspend disbelief for a moment. Right? Imagine that you're thinking, right? you, are, you are setting up a system, an educational system or political system, and the given is that you can't tell whether these people are authentic or not. And the question is, do you exclude them all? Do you include them all? Or do you try and find a system which will say, even though I don't know which are authentic or not, I will be able to allow the authentic, right, the authentics to emerge, right? But right, I can control that. Right, so let's start right. Let's let's start with that right with that premise that you have to build a system which will work even if you don't have a perfect way of, dis- of distinguishing them, which can be either because there is no way of distinguishing them or because they are the same. All right, that's the model I want to set up. Yes, there. The, um, the parallel in Shulabet is in opposition to um, the Republic because it is a criticism of the leader of the parallel? Yeah, okay. and it seems to legitimate it. Right? That, right, that as opposed to the Republic's notion that, right, that there is a single unimpeachable source of authority, namely reason, right, which should overcome charismatics who are there only to support the king. Right? What the... Right, what, what Tanakh sets out is that the role of the charismatic is to criticize the king. And that's, right, and we have this moment. Now you can say, okay, but what makes David the philosopher? Right, that's a fair question, so and that issue, is... Sorry, the issue is criticism. The issue isn't that it's told in a fiction terrible form. Well, if he criticized him philosophically, that would, right, that would say, okay, but, you know, that's rational dispute. That would not be relevant to Plato. But, but he doesn't. The parables used in the Republic then are different. Why? To explain an idea, or to get someone to because philosophers are allowed to use parables, okay. right? Because they derive their parables from reason. But that's not right. But prophets, I arguing a non-Lamedian scheme, don't derive their parables from reason, right? David isn't argued into this. David is trapped, right? Somebody tells him a story, he reacts to the story, which is not a true story at all. It's entirely made up, and then somebody springs something out in the heat of the moment. And he, right, and all of a sudden, he has to, right, he has to rethink because of the power of that moment. Nothing, there's no argument. There are lots of ways in which he is not the man, right? If he were, right, if he were having a rational argument, no, I'm not that man. A, I'm the king. B, right, there are a lot, right, there are lots of fish in the sea, right, all sorts of ways to do that. But no, right, he's, right, he's manipulated. And all of Eov, right, all of Eov is telling you a story which is exactly designed to convey the purpose that Plato is opposing. Yes, yeah. I mean, is that just sort of arbitrary distinction between philosophy and charisma? Like, if I'm going to look to the prophets, I can make a Bavarian distinction between, like, charisma, tradition, and, like, legal authority. Good. So hold, hold that for a moment. Hold that for a moment, okay? You're saying that's vital now? Uh, 
Yeah. That what do you do with the story of Michayahu ben Yimla and that whole thing? That's clearly one of the key stories of how Nevi'im relate to kings. If all the Nevi'im say, Nevi'e oh, Sheka saying one thing and him, him saying something else. Uh-huh. So you think that this is, that would support you? Yeah. Because sure. the king who criticizes them is the right. Is the right. Absolutely. The, right, what you have there is the king who wants the right, who says, no, the job of prophets is to support the, right, 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 I wish to control the artists. Right, but that's not the true artist. Uh, okay. So, I, so I'm gonna, here I want to move to, um, what may be my favorite Pasuk in Tanakh, which is Yermia 2.8. Um, Yermia 2.8 said, right, is, this is Yermia's criticism, so it's from the perspective of a prophet who is a Kohen. Uh, he says, this is a fascinating pasuk. It is intended to be a critique of the entire leadership of Bal Yisrael towards the end of Bayer Rishon. And what it tells you is that there are four types of leaders. And each of these leaders, even if they have the capacities for leadership, are corruptible. Right? That there are flaws in each of these type of leaders. And we know the, jo- the job of these leaders are, pre- right? the leaders are priests, shepherds, prophets, and those who hold on to Torah. So, who do you think? Prophets are pretty clear, but it's a fascinating claim that prophets can prophesy for the ball. Right? It doesn't say you pick the wrong prophets. Right, doesn't, right? If, if you think that Kohanim are parallel, that Kohanim are parallel to Nevi'im, right? So Kohanim are not fil- failing their task, even though they are they are properly the hereditary priests, and the Nevi'im are not filling their are not filling their tasks, even though they are properly Nevi'im. Right? The Nevi'im can mistake, uh, right? Can mistake what they are what they are told, which we know because Shmuel, mis- right? Because Shmuel can't tell in the voice of God and Eli. Uh, right, the prophets don't always get what they're uh, don't always don't always don't always get it right. Okay, so now so who are? Th- we'll, we'll get. Well, I haven't gotten there yet. Oh. Okay, and then we have then we have shepherds and those who hold on to Torah. So who are shepherds? Who's the classic ruah? Eh? In Tanakh, David Amelach. Right, first Moshe and then David Amelach. So the shepherds are the kings. The political leaders. Well, I don't know. Is it really claiming well that you're being led by priests, prophets, and yes, shepherds? I don't think it's such a strong, such a, it's such a big. And then we have those who hold on to Torah. So who are they? Talmidei Chachamim. Torah scholars. Very important because historically it gets you Torah scholars as a, as a class of leaders in, in the first temple. Um, but also important religiously. So, right? so you have these four different elements of religious leadership, and each of them have their flaws. And so what I want to suggest is that if we're going to, that in, what we set up as a, um, we set up as a political theory, the political theory of, the broad political theory of Torah is that there are these various um, forces, right? Force, forces in human beings, each of which have something to contribute to power, but each of which cannot be allowed to have absolute power. One of those is charisma, and the question is, right? How do you how do you contain charisma? Um, and when, and right, and what you set up is an overall system which has which has um, these four types of authority. Um, and charisma is at least one of them. But now we think about it, we'll realize, actually no, because we started off, we said there were, there were multiple definitions of charisma, one of which was charisma about the person, and the other was charisma about the office. So charisma about the person is nevuah, and charisma about the office is kahuna. So I want to suggest that you can, right, that you can set up a vision of, right, a vision of, of Torah political theory which acknowledges both of the kinds of charisma that is set, right, that, um, that, that is set, set out in the dictionary and that both of these are, uh, are built into a system 
and at the same time, um, right, at the same time, they're built in with counterparts, and the counterparts are the counterparts are the king and the Talmud, the king and the Talmud Chacham, and they'll have to figure out how do the king and how the king and the Talmud Chacham relate to the philosopher, um, and it should be pretty clear that in Plato, the king and the Talmud Chacham are the same person, namely the philosopher king, um, but that um, the halachic system splits them, just as it splits the charisma. Of, right, the charisma of office and the and the and the charisma of personality. Right, so that's the that's the that's the um, overarching thesis I want to set up that way. In order for this to be true, so right, so the, the basic thesis of this is that the capacity that what we the charisma is the capacity to stand for something larger than yourself to other people. And when people see you, they don't relate to you as right, they don't relate to you as you. They relate to you as right, as, some, right, as, as something uh, right either as a representative of God. And the question is: Is magnetic personality really different than that? Um, uh, or they relate to you as a representative of God because you are a priest, and priests can do cool things, right? Priests you know, who are ordinary people in, in daily life, all of a sudden they stand up in front of you and they face you, and there's electricity on their fingertips. Right? Just because they're priests. Uh, you can't look at them. So how do we set up a system which accounts for this? So the next thing I gave you was um, Ellie Fisher. Some of you may remember Ellie Fisher was an SBM fellow, I think, in the second year of the program. Uh, and he came back and spoke um, spoke here two years ago, I think, about, uh, right, so his blog is ADD Rabbi. And also Adarabah, because he spoke about AD, ADD in the Beit Midrash. Um, so, right, so he tried, so, right, so this is, again, a, there's a, there's a whole, Ellie and I both wrote, um, both wrote articles four years, um, four years ago, um, or the aftermath of earlier scandals, and then after Shana Goldberg's recent piece, uh, each of us rewrote our pieces a number of times, and his, his is the final piece, which I think is so far the summa of what has, of what has been said. And, um, and again, mention all Sassy Mato's Paul Shaviva really changed the discourse by setting up what he called the Pied Piper teacher as a danger to a school as opposed to as a hero. And it's a really interesting chapter where he sets it out and it's worth reading. Uh, even if you don't fully agree, it's really worth reading. Um, so, Ellie talks about, right, first of all, what, what charismatic teachers do, um, but without dealing with the, without dealing with the issue of whether Teachers always do one or the other, or whether teachers actually move uh, move between the categories. Um, right, he has three categories: what he calls hard charisma, and the last category of what he calls um, soft, what he calls soft charisma. And he um, right, he, acknowledge, he acknowledges um, right, sorry, then he, then he, right, he, he acknowledges the definition that I tried to offer there at the at the definition of that in the classroom the good kind the one way of figuring out the effects of charisma is whether a charismatic teacher expands the student's self or whether a charismatic teacher replaces the student's self, um, which is an attempt at offering an experiential um, definition of what happens. And then try, right, we both tried to set up a, um, a series of boundaries that would, um, that would Right, that would um, enable people who don't have access, because we don't have access to students' experience, right? My claim that I look at that student and they walk out of the classroom and it's clear that those students have less of their own sense of self and more of their teacher's sense of self, how am I going to prove that? Um, so the question is, are there objective markers that you can look for in what teachers do? Um, so the one, which I think is just really important pragmatically, but also important in terms of understanding this, is that um, most forms of energy are fungible. And so most charismatic teachers, in, well, charisma is easily transformable into erotic appeal. And so a very easy test is whether a teacher stretches boundaries um, in terms of yichud specifically. And that, so I think that in a, you know, in a from school, it's a pretty easy test. You have a teacher who you, right, who you recognize as being a charismatic personality, no later than the second even minor offense has to be a firing offense. Um, which does not mean that they're necessarily manipulative. I want to be clear, there are people who are just who are manipulative. It's just because they're human beings, 
and they put themselves in situations where, right, where they're tempted, other people are tempted, eventually they're going to slip. Um, and if they're not self-aware enough to realize this is happening, then you have to get rid of them. Because you're just, right, it's just a scandal waiting to happen. Um, and this can be done. You can walk over to teachers. I've done that. Walk over to teachers and say, you know, you may not realize it, but, you know, but half of your students have your picture on their wall. And often teachers don't realize it. But you have to be aware of it, right? It has to change the way you react to it. When you react to them, I learned this from a, um, there is a novel called, I think the, I always can, there are two novels I always read together, right? Up the Down Staircase and the Blackboard Jungle. Um, Up the Down Staircase is supposed to be a cheerful novel about teaching in inner city high school. The Blackboard Jungle is supposed to be a hopelessly depressing novel of that sort. Um, but one of the scenes there, which, right, is the scene of the teacher who was totally unaware of the impact on the student. And what happens when the student sends a love letter and the teacher marks as a teacher corrects the grammar? Um, so I think that's one. I mean, there's other other of other practical things, but another one which I think is a really is um, there are two two really big things that come out of Ellie's list. One is um, what is the ratio of content to unmoored emotion in a teacher's inspirational talks. Can the talks or lessons be quantified in terms of thinking, textual or depersonal skills, or only or mostly in terms of emotion and inspiration? How does the teacher respond to a student who questions, challenges, or rejects his or her assertions? Now, pragmatically, by the way, it's very, very important not to ask teachers what they do, because many teachers who are the worst at this believe they are the best. Um, right, that's just the reality that you have to be aware of this. But I think it's an interesting claim. What Ellie's basically saying is, that people who speak in terms of what I would call in our initial definition pure charisma, right, that their arguments are not rooted in any other evaluative system, right, are much more dangerous than people who are accountable to something other than something other than the power of the experience they give you. Right, that's really that's really the difference. You know, I'm, I'm cynical about this, I have to say, you know, so I tend to be deeply, deeply cynical about schools who have what they call the Ruach person. Um, because I don't know what the Torah is in there. Right? The Ruach person is the person who runs the pep rally for the basketball team. And the Ruach is the person who runs, right, who, right, who runs the pep rally for the, right, for the Siyah Mishnayas, whatever. Right? You know, it, the Ruach is Ruach. Is Ruach. Um, there is a value in having, right, in, ha- in having an energy person. But I think that Elliot's distinction is important. And there we get back, you know, we get, we go back into the Platonic model, right? It means that the charisma has to be answerable to philosophy. It can't be itself, right? It can't be self-justifying. Um, and in the end, in the end, so he quotes, a, a, right, he goes a fascinating metaphor. He says that God is not in the earthquake, the great gust or the fire, but in the still small voice. And he does it on purpose because he thinks that the classic biblical, right, Right, who thinks, right, who is taught in the class, in the standard model? We, don't, we won't redo the Tanakh thing right now, the standard model, right, who is it who's taught that God is not in the, in, in the earthquake, the great gust of the fire? Eliyahu Navi. Right, who is the ultimate charismatic? Eliyahu uh, Navi right, is all about grandiose effects. Um, so, by, but I want to finish that by saying, but, um, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, in one of his better moments, as a uh, points out, it's true that God is not in the earthquake and the world within the fire in Eliyahu, but he is in Eov. Right, the book of Eov answer, right, ends with God answering out right, God answering out of the world out of the whirlwind. So whatever lesson Eliyahu learns is not absolute. And Sefer Eov stands again as right as the right as the antithesis of the Platonic system, right, in which Right, in which fiction has its own, right, fiction and charisma has its own standpoint, which is valuable. Okay. So that, that, uh, so I, I want to set that out as an, edu- uh, right, first of all, as an educational thing, that the claim being that charisma, the capacity to, um, right, to convey some form of inspiration is simply, some, right, it's a human capacity. It's really hard to, it's really hard for a school to work without People who provide energy, uh, you know, you can. Right, there are schools that just, you know, everyone just does their job and walks in everything, you know, and the and the content is by itself. But they're very, very rare, and I doubt that any whole school can actually do it. I think certain classrooms can function 
um, just because of the excitement of the material. Um, but most schools, um, most schools want teachers who are capable of, right, and to, teachers who are capable of having impact and relationship with students. And that's not a bad thing. It's just you have to set out a system of accountability. Now you have to not see the fact of inspiration as its own end. But I think the notion that the solution is to the solution is to get you know suggest get rid of charisma seems to me to be unrealistic. And then I want to argue further. It's not just that. It's that you can have a school which is run entirely by Tosei HaTorah. Right, it's run by Tamari Chachamim. And at the end of the day, you can say that's brilliant, but nobody knows God. Right, so that's right. So it's not right that there isn't... It's not, I, I don't think that the, that the Allahic system is intended to emulate, uh, to, emu- to emulate the Republic. So... Is there a way of, right, the things that I've argued, right, so when I'm, we're talking about education, um, so I'm frank, I'm basically arguing out of my own experience. Right, I haven't quoted any, pro, you know, any, right, the only text I've really quoted at you, one plus in Yermia to set up a model which is not dealing with education. And what I, what I basically did was I used Plato to move, right, to, 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 right, to claim that philosophy and education are connected, and then I set up, and then I used Plato as a straw man to try and argue that we have something different. But I haven't rooted the system that I'm trying to use. Yes? Just to understand in terms of um, yeah. your, your, your nine-point series, it kind of set up um, thinking that in order, yeah, that in terms of when a teacher, um, an effective teacher is only an effective teacher if you can bring the material to life with charisma, or is it, or is it, or is there another dimension to teaching that it is more than just the facts and the figures and material is maybe even non-charismatic, but in some way animates the material, makes it makes it relevant to the to the students, and that's irrespective of charisma. So I'm denying the term non-charismatic. Okay. So so if you can't, if, if, if it's it's either it's either a rational, reasonable presentation of the facts and the figures and the logic and the material, and the actual, right. or there is a charismatic um, presentation. Right. Right. And we shouldn't, you know, confuse charisma with, you know, with bells and whistles. There are lots of different ways to, um, right, there are lots of different ways to engage in, to engage in charisma. Um, yeah. so, so just to be clear though, so, I mean, if you compare, if you quite, it's theoretically possible an effective teacher that's presenting material in terms that students can understand, maybe setting examples from the real world, and, and, and the, the teacher's not very, um, Compelling, per se, otherwise, in terms of personality, but is able to. If the student comes out in love with the material, so the student says, "You know, the teacher is boring. I never want to hear them again." But I, but I was really interested by the subject. Great, not so likely. So okay, so just to be clear, so when you say for a teacher not to be boring, then that that implies some aspect of charisma. Yeah, I don't think philosoph- I think philosopher kings, right, are unlikely to be able to rule. Simply because people say, "Oh, they're very smart," right? And Plato understands that too. Right? They're going to have to use charisma. In like classical political theory, what validates charisma is bureaucracy, is the ability to bureaucratize. If it can't be, then both. Right, so the the first word I ever heard from Lichtenstein, that uh, was was uh, his question of why. Uh, the question was. Why did Moshe Rabbeinu have to be the Kohen Gadol initially? The Kohen Gadol, right? Why did Moshe Rabbeinu have to be the Kohen Gadol and only our own take over, take over afterwards? So I used the concept from sociology, which I think comes from Weber, but I'm never, never sure if I'm right about that, uh, called the routinization of charisma. Right? That, you, that if you have a bureaucracy which isn't rooted in charisma, then it will become, you know, soul, it'll, it'll become soul-killing. But if you have charisma without bureaucracy... Right, that'll run amok. So his theory was the kuna, right? The kuna and the transition of the kuna from Moshe to Aaron is about the routinization of charisma. We we also see it as a dialogue between Moshe and his father-in-law, who is also a priest, and Christ. Ah, interesting. That's a big question of what you think uh, what you think Kohen means. But it's an interesting reading. Uh, that was like a Leon Cass reading of that, uh, that type of reading of that episode. Could be. Could be. I haven't seen. He hasn't come out with a shmote yet. I see. So you, you can be into it if you read uh, if you read Yisro that way. It's interesting. 
Uh, it's interesting. Um, it's very interesting. Uh, worth, worth, worth exploring. Thank you. Um, okay, so what I want to say, the question is, is there a, is there a sort of concrete evidence in, uh, in halacha for the type of arguments I'm setting out, or am I just making, you know, just setting it out? I have to say when I proposed this to the, um, to the editor, uh, when I proposed the book to, to, to Magid, so the response, I said I want to build a political theory out of the sources of halacha, as opposed to imposing, you know, taking a political theory and proving that halacha holds this, right, holds the existing political theory. I was told this was very, very ambitious. Um, to try and build a theory actually out of the internal material uh, as opposed to it. So here's what I want to, uh, step one I want to argue. So first of all we have, we're on page four, you have in, um, you have in Devarim, um, two parsh, right, two, uh, two and the, um, the, right, the, the parshiot tell you that, uh, first parshiot tells you that if a prophet arises in your midst, or a dreamer, and gives you a sign or wonder, and the sign or wonder which he spoke to you comes true, um, right? Do not obey the words of that prophet or dreamer because God is testing you to see whether you really love God. Right? You have to kill that prophet. Right? So false prophets are bad. Prophets of Baal, really, really bad. On the other hand, we learn in the very 18, good prophets. Good prophets have to be absolutely obeyed. Absolutely obeyed. As long as they say, as long as they say what they say comes true. So we have prophets who make predictions that come true that are evil and have to be killed, and prophets whose predictions come true and have to be obeyed absolutely. Now, how do we distinguish between those prophets? It's kind of hard, right? Pardon? Wait and see it out. We're waiting. They make the first prediction, right? And it comes true. And then they say, I want you to go eat pork. Now, if they're true prophets, you are absolutely obligated to obey them. And if they are false prophets, you are absolutely obligated to kill them. Now, what do you do? That's great. So we could say, we could say the false prophet is not allowed to tell you to do things that are contra halachic. Unfortunately, so now we'll turn the page. Right, if we go to page, if we go to page six, if we want to read it in English. Um, right. So, um, right. So Maimonides, um, so the Rama tells you if you read through this session, right. So if you take a look in the middle of the second paragraph, there's the three dots, which ends, which begin, um, and after the three dots, there's a word likewise. So likewise, a prophet known to us as a prophet, meaning he got one, he got, right, the Maimonides known to us as a prophet means that he made one prediction which had a less than 50% chance of being true and he got it right. Okay, right, so let's say at the beginning of this year he had said the Cleveland Cavaliers will win the NBA championship. Now it's true. So now he is an authorized, right, now he is a verified prophet. It was not, you know, he could have taken a bigger risk and says I only had a 5% chance as opposed to a 20% chance, but he took his chances less than 50%. Okay. Likewise, a prophet known to us as a prophet tells us to transgress one of the commandments stated in the Torah, where many commandments, whether severe or light, for a time, it is commanded to obey him. As we have learned in from the early sages via tradition, in everything, if the prophet tells you to transgress the words of Torah, like Elijah at Mount Carmel, obey him, except in matters of idolatry. The prophets are not allowed to command you to commit idolatry. But they can command you to do anything else, as long as, right, they have to be, they, have to, they cannot claim that the Torah has been changed to do this. They have to say, even though the Torah says this, and it always says this, and will always say this, but you, right now, should not do this. Yeah, that's Pikuach Nefesh. Right? Yeah, Pikuach Nefesh is part of the law. This is Yom Kippur, you're perfectly healthy, and we say to you, Andy Warren, it's time to have that cheeseburger. <laughs> it's part of the whole shul, that's what it needs right now. That was a problem, that Navi wasn't right? Well, we have to find out, right? This is the risk, you know, how do you know? 
The, the classic model again is Elio at Mount Carmel, right, right before he has the scene. Because what Elio does is he brings the sacrifice at Mount Carmel. Uh oh, you're not allowed to do that. There's a temple. And in fact, it has all sorts of dangerous consequences because, at least my theory, I don't think it's a radical thesis, but the rest of Tanakh, even the best kings, what's the thing they never get rid of? The high places. Why? Because any time they try, somebody says, look, look over there. That's the altar that Eliyahu and Avi built. And you were telling me I can't do that? Right, right, right. That, was the, that was the price of Eliyahu and Avi's charismatic, right, charismatic breaking the law. That people never believe that it's against the law anymore. Okay, fair point. Fair point as to what, right, what really happens in Israel, where the Israeli have any hope of getting rid of that. Because right, they don't have a bit of Mizash, right? So they're all worshipping about Azura. But I'm arguing, even in Yehuda, right? They're just looking up there, right? There's a mountain. That's where the altar is. What are you talking about? I think. Okay. Interesting point, right? It would be cooler if it happened only in Israel and not in Yehuda. It would be cooler. I agree. But isn't there a difference, though, in terms of when you say that the Navi is, 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 is for example, maybe adding a practice or adding a, 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 some sort of a requirement or something for a given situation versus going against Torah in terms of, uh, you know, I mean, if, 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 if nothing were to say, okay, for now, just eat pork, we have to eat pork all the time, clearly you're going against it. Right. I mean, something... But if he says for the next thousand years, we'll eat pork. That's fine. Okay. No, I mean, no. If, if there, I guess there would have to be some sort of um, overriding rationale for the time. Ah. Similar to, similar to the case of uh, Eliyahu at the time, was afraid that, right, Good. that he was going to lose the nation. And who's going to decide whether his and how? Right. Let's suppose. I'll give you. Here's a here's a case. Right. It's a, you know, one of my favorite cases in responsible literature. I taught it here some years ago. Maybe some of you will remember it. There's a woman, nice, virtuous, you know, middle class woman, married to a fine, upstanding traveling salesman, or you know, international businessman. International businessman goes away. Woman, kindly, open hazard, you know, man shows up. You know, wearing a hair shirt, um, right? obviously a very pious man, asks you, for, ask, asks you, hungry, asks for shelter. Woman takes him in. Very impressive. The man's piety. He won't eat anything but you know, he won't eat anything but bread and water. He sleeps on the floor. Every once in a while, he does other, he does all sorts of things. Obviously, he's a static. Right? It goes on for a week, and at the end, man tells her, "By the way, I'm Eliyahu Navi, and the two of us together." are fated to be the parents of the Messiah. So you need to sleep with me now so that we can, right, we can give birth, to, right, so that we can together uh, right, birth the Messiah. And by the way, don't worry, right, there's a box in my room and when your husband comes home, right, don't open the box until your husband comes home. When your husband comes home, you open that box, you're going to see there's incredible wealth of, right, wealth of jewels inside it that will, that will make you wealthy beyond your, beyond your wildest dreams. So she says, okay. Prophet says, you got to listen. And she sleeps with him. And her husband comes home and she tells him the whole story very excitedly. Look, Elio and Abhi came and he's, right, he left this box full of jewels, full of, full of jewels in the, um, in the, uh, in, right, in the room. And then they go to the box and they open the box and unfortunately, no jewels. And then the question comes to the, um, I forget who it is already now. Uh, it's not the Arachlinar. Is it the Arachlinar? Right, what, you know, whether, she, whether she's still permitted to her husband or not. Pardon? No, it's not the Nebuda. No, it's not the Nebuda. I know, that, I know it's not that. Nebuda is, is a much wilder, crazy adultery case. Uh, right, this it might be the Ereklinir. It might be the Ereklinir. It might be that I'm getting something up. But I don't, I don't think so. Whatever, I'll find it afterwards. So the question I have is, why is she wrong? I know why she's wrong, because we don't have prophets anymore. But if she had lived in Bayat Rishon... Right, if the Shunamit that Elisha lived, that, right, uh, that Eliyahu lived with, or the, right, or the Tzarfatit, right, I forget which one is which one Eliyahu and Elisha, and that would have been fine, because it doesn't say you don't listen to prophets when they tell you to sleep with you. 
And it has a really good reason, right? Otherwise, the soul, the soul of the Messiah is trapped. And the only way to release the soul of the Messiah is through the union of our, right, the, the union of our two souls. That's what can release it. There's also an aspect of, um, at least with regards to Eliyahu and Carmel, there's an, an aspect of, sort of national witness of what's going on. I mean, there's a, you know, this isn't a, a clandestine operation, you know, it's, it's a very public, public event. Okay. You know, I mean, I, I, I and um, I'm not sure I see what the, especially, I don't know if it's putting up the suit all, but like, you know, you don't see any, you, what's the personal, I guess, what's the personal agenda, what's the personal, personal gain to be, to be gained by the problem in the case of Eliyahu Karmai, aside from... Okay, so now you're saying all sorts of really interesting critiques. So you're saying that another criteria, not mentioned in the Rambam, is that if a prophet tells you to violate halacha in a way which, right, there's a, there's a new rule which is a, um, what's it called? A conflict of interest rule. Prophets are not allowed to, right, to give you instructions that break halacha and are in terms of their own interests. And that will write a whole set of regulations. But, but I think in terms of what's, just speaking about, you know, again, with, with, with the prophet, Mark Kamel, or my bitterness, whether it's, where there's, you know, um, I mean, the command, the command in Devari, right, is, I mean, it's to the, the populace. Uh-huh. It seems like it's, it's, it's against a prophet um, making a public declaration on what to do to, to do it for the entire Kegila. In other words, there'd be some vetting, but there'd not be some vetting, you know, ostensibly from, 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 from the greater society, whereas, you know, the case of... Uh, who does the vetting, and since when well, do you I mean, trust just, people you know, to do a good, good job? Kind of if you're, if you're in front of thousands and thousands of people, somebody's going to call you out if you're off stage. Okay, that's a nice thing, but, but that person will probably get stoned. The person who calls you out, right? You got the charismatic up there, and you're getting up there to say, right? The, the prophet's not wearing any clothes, so he says that man is right. That man is in violation of Deuteronomy. That's right, and okay, you can set up a public requirement. Maimonides doesn't, though. It's just why the Raman doesn't set up a requirement that it be public. But they, were, yeah. So people talk about that, right? But they assisted, so they were overlooked neighbor. Right, that's usually the way people, right? They brought they brought the korbanos, right? That's how people try and, and play out, right? How, otherwise, Elio is not a proof at all. But the Rama uses Elio as the proof. All right, so the okay. So I want to set out one um, possibly uncharacteristically methodological uh, argument, and you'll see if you buy it. So uh, in the first in the first chapter of uh, Mishnah Sanhedrin. Um, first chapter of Mishnah is a very complicated, this we're on page 7 now, a very complicated um, literary phenomenon because it keeps on listing things and there are, with common endings, but breaking them up. Like paragraph which says, like, these three kinds of cases are judged by courts of three. These sets of cases are judged by courts of three. These sets of cases are judged by courts of three. You're like, why don't you just have it in one long sentence? Right? So it's difficult to figure out the literary structure of the opening chapter of Sanhedrin is, because as opposed to having the list of things that are judged by three, the list of things that are judged by courts of 23, the list of things that are judged by courts of 71, it breaks each of them into independent sentences with the same outcome at the end of it. So Rabbi Soloveitchik, in one of his famous Urim, um, claims that the breakup of the, of the courts of 71, the reason they're broken into multiple sentences, is because the great Sanhedrin wears multiple hats. And he sets out the types of hats. He says that they serve a role as the symbolic sovereign, and they serve a role as the, as the, as the embodiment of the intellectual tradition, and they serve a role as the high court. And that's basically right. He says that these three, three roles, of the, three roles, three roles of the great Sanhedrin, they symbolize the people, they symbolize the Torah, they symbolize, right, they, right, they have the courts. And so he argues that each of these sections um, can be um, represents one of these roles. Uh, I love the idea. Um, it's not always compelling in the evidence, so I cannot tell you that I think it is true. But I love the idea. So I'm going to make an argument of the same sort, which is probably subject to the same vulnerabilities. But we'll see if you buy it. 
So one of the one of the sections, right? I gave you in Sanhedrin one five. You'll see that right, you see that there are four consecutive statements, each of which end only with right only with a uh, only with a court of uh, with the consent of a court of seventy one. The first is you cannot judge a tribe, a false prophet, or a high priest except in a court of seventy one. So what do a tribe, a false prophet, and a high priest have in common? So the first move which the Gemara makes is that a tribe does not actually mean a tribe. Right? A tribe actually means the nasi, right? the head of a tribe. And so now the question is, what do these three, what do these three um, figures have in common such that they all need to be judged by a tribe of 71? So here's what I wanted to argue. The, um, the nasi, is, right, the nasi, and this is a, this is where I admit I'm making a stretch because nobody knows this, right? Because we have no tribal political structures. So no one has the faintest idea what Nasi can do other than bring wagonfuls of stuff when you're dedicating the tabernacle, right? That seems that's the only role the Nasi seems to play anywhere in anywhere in Chumash. But a plausible uh, a plausible argument, I think, is that Nasi has Nasi within the tribe has roughly the same powers as the king within as the king within the nation. So let's assume that it really says that you cannot judge the the nasi, meaning you can't judge the the king himself is you can't have in this mishnah because the mishnah is is a second temple mishnah when that nobody nobody pretended that they had the authority to judge the king the king would just execute you if you tried to judge him, but in practice but in theory what it really means is that the Zahedrin should have the authority to judge the king, to judge the high priest and to judge the prophet. So what is right? What is, what is, what is um, all this about? So I want to suggest that the king, the high priest, and the prophet represent figures who have the authority to break the law uh, on different grounds, right? So the the um, the prophet has the has what we call horat sha'ah, right? The capacity right, which you just saw, the capacity to tell you to break the law. The king has the right to break the law for for public policy purposes, and the and the um, the high priest has the has access to the urim vitumim, which in certain cases seem to right seem to right to be act, to be access access to a, a source of authority that does not come from the law. Yes, Ibrahim. If you're right, there are four categories in that pasuk you like to quote. Yes. Why isn't Zakim Mamre in this? Very good. It's the wise Zakim Mamre. Right? So we'll, we'll we'll talk about that for a moment. Um, so what I want to suggest is. That the structure of this Mishnah is that we have four sources of authority, and we legitimate those sources of authority. Um, we have Roim, Kohanim, Nevi'im, and Tosei Torah. And ultimately, what the what the what the first Mishnah means is that the other three are ultimately subordinate to the Tosei Torah. Right? That the that the bearers of right, the bearers of the intellectual tradition ultimately have authority over the others. But that this is not intended in a this is not intended in a platonic in a platonic sense to mean that they're supposed to use their authority to censor everything they do. And that's why right that's why the system explicitly gives the prophet the authority, right, the charismatic authority, to say that although they're te- right, they're telling you that on the basis of their authority you should do X. I'm telling you on the basis of my authority to do why. Now we have a nice bright line rule, which is that whenever that the law is always binding, except when a prophet tells you that it's not binding. But when a prophet tells you, but when a prophet when a prophet tells you it's not binding, they are still bound not to tell you that it's permanent, and they're bound not to tell you that it's um, that it's idolatry. Um, that they can do idolatry, and that's great. But there are the easy test cases, which is what happens? The prophet says do this, and it's not and it's not idolatry. And the people and the scientist says, yes, it is. A, it is idolatry. What if he frames it in some kind of way? He says, only for a thousand years. That's not permanent. And the scientist says, yes, that is permanent. So ultimately, you're going to have to. Ultimately, you're going to have to. Um, you're going to have to enable somebody to decide. And also, the way the system is set up, there is this enormous vulnerability, um, which is that right that the prophet can act out of self-interest. And having gotten one thing right, there should be no control in the prophet's self-interest, except that it doesn't make sense. Right? So I want to argue that the purpose of this Mishnah is to say that while we legitimate charismatic authority, because we recognize that the authority of the law is vulnerable to corruption just like all the others, 
Um, and that's where Spermachlu points out that also there are figures, right, that there are critics from within the law, which, are, which is the Zakei Mamre. But ultimately, the system says that when, when push comes to shove, we, right, we acknowledge our, our particular intellectual tradition as having to have authority over the others. Granted that it's not a purely philosophic tradition because it's also rooted in revelation. Right, so the authority of our intellectuals is ultimately rooted in something charismatic as opposed to something human. But we set it up as an ultimate claim, but we set up a system which doesn't assume that because the ultimate authority belongs to, um, belongs to the intellectuals, therefore the intellectuals should use it to, pr- to control the others. Right? All they're supposed to do right, is just that there are extreme limits. And then I want to argue, and this will finish with this, is that um, probably the most popular Gemara that people use nowadays, right, we just thought on Shabbos, is the, uh, the story of Tanur Shalach and the, the famous line that everyone loves is Lo Bashamayimhi, right? Torah is not in heaven. Which people often understand as a declaration of human freedom. But I think this is a misunderstanding. It's not a declaration of human freedom from God, it's a recognition that all divine communication ultimately is going to be filtered through a human being. And so we set up a system, we say is it right, we say is that prophets prophets are entitled to have their role in the system, but the one the, the limit that halakha sets up on the law, and this is Maimonides also, that one of the ways in which you can tell that a prophet is a false prophet is if the prophet claims that they know what the law is, not what to do, but they know what the law is. If they violate Loba Shemayim. So I want to suggest that Loba Shemayim and Einavi Rashad Chadesh Tavarameyatza, similar types of things where the prophets can't, right? what they are, are not, uh, they're not they, they have nothing to do with the historical evolution of law or about, right, about human freedom to create the way they wish, what they're about is the restraint of charisma. Of charisma. But if the Torah were still in Shemayim, then that would mean that ultimate authority would have to come, well, God, right, God told me this, and how could you not listen to it? So saying, right, saying the Torah is not in heaven is a way of enabling that the, um, the final authority always to be in the hands of the law as opposed to be in the hands of the charismatics, and that's why uh, that's why Eliezer ultimately has to lose, not because he's wrong, but because procedurally, right, procedurally his claim will mean that charismatics can control the law, rather than the law controlling charismatics. And given it, right, and given a choice, even, right, so I want to set out, and this is the brother, the political theory of halakha is that charisma is necessary because philosophers are corruptible like everybody else. I mean, it's right, Tosea Torah cannot know you, but it's not, it doesn't set up a, but it doesn't set up a system where we just say, okay, we'll let the charismatics and non-charismatics fight it out, and whoever wins wins. It's a system that creates the space for charisma, but also makes clear that in the end, if you have to choose, that the law has right, the law has authority um, over charisma. The charisma has to be um, has to be accountable. And then I'm hoping, arguing that that is actually an effective model for thinking about the role of charisma in education as well. Right, that education is necessary, that charisma is necessary. Um. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.